So hello, everybody. I am Carrie Givens, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership, www.higheredleads.com. That's our logo. Um, in any case, um, I am a former provost and um, political scientist, and so I have been pretty active in following what's going on in higher ed with all of these issues around um, the coronavirus. And so uh, but one of the things that really struck me is the lack of communication, um, not only, you know, between, you know, uh, people who are in administration and students and, and parents. So the one thing I should mention is I'm a, I'm a parent as well. My son is actually up in Portland where Ken is um, at Lewis and Clark College. And I've been on the Facebook page for parents and the parents are all, um, uh, <laughs> you know, concerned about what's going on. I'm watching you guys in the chat there. I see the snark. <laughs> in any case. Um, yeah, so Terrence actually is supposed to be in charge of the chat. So feel free to put comments in there and questions for our guests. But I just wanted to say really quickly, because I want to leave time for questions, um, that I was involved in 2009 with the H1N1 uh, situation in Austin, Texas. I was the vice provost for undergraduate curriculum and international. So I was responsible for study abroad decisions, as well as uh, other curriculum issues and um, you know, it's, it was just overwhelming for me as a political scientist to be suddenly in charge of this massive effort um, for the university. And uh, we did survive it uh, with a lot of help from the you know, public officials and, and making sure we had a good line of communication with the public health people and so on. And luckily that one didn't uh, get too bad. We didn't have to worry about closing campuses, but now we're seeing every day, of course, new campuses are talking about shutting down and, and so on. But I wanted to start with Ken because um, Ken understands viruses. <laughs> and I know even I have had lots of questions just about, you know, why do we have to do, you know, avoid social contact? And so, you know, so what is social distancing? But Ken can actually, he, I also posted, so um, we have a web, uh, web page on our hireleads.com page on coronavirus resources. And I posted Ken's um, interview he did with the local television station that actually goes into some of the detail, but I, it, 15 minutes is not enough time for Ken, but um, we will let you tell us what you can in 15 minutes about the virus and, and what we should be thinking about as higher ed professionals. Okay, so um, just quickly as an introduction, um, I'm not really a virologist. I always say I just play one on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, my background is actually in chemical engineering, um, which is where I started. Then I moved into molecular biology later on. And it's only been for the last uh, 20 years, showing my age a little bit, I guess here, um, that I've been working on viruses. But mostly those viruses, at least in my research, aren't viruses that make people sick. These are viruses which infect microbes, just sort of the real extremes of life. But I do teach a virology course, and one of the things that we cover is coronaviruses. And so I've actually posted my coronavirus lectures on YouTube, and um, I'll make sure there's a link to those as well if people want to take a look at that. So <clears throat> basically, Terry asked me to give a little bit of an overview on you know thinking about this particular coronavirus and then what we can think about in terms of higher education and you know, higher education leadership, et cetera. And um, a lot of the stuff which is happening right now in terms of university closures, going online, et cetera, um, that's well beyond my area of expertise. Um, I know about the viruses per se, and I can tell you a little bit more about that. I can do my best to answer questions. And I see that just having that question and answer thing here, I'm more than happy to try and answer your questions. And um, as a good academic, I'm really good at saying, I don't know. Um, and that's one of the major things actually about this new coronavirus outbreak is there's so much we don't know about it. And so a lot of this is kind of you know, poking around in the dark and I you know, use that analogy a lot because there's so little information that we have about it. But let's, let's get back down to the details a little bit more here about, um, as I mentioned, the new coronavirus. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that coronaviruses have been with us actually for a very long time. Um, we are currently um, sort of depends on how people count four or five coronaviruses, which have been just circulating in humans for a while, a couple of them clearly cause a, you know, see Terry going at her face there. 
the the sort of a regular you know seasonal cold kind of thing so not really a big deal as far as infection and particularly the response that we have to them and so that was pretty standard and there was very little work that was being done on these viruses you know boring common cold who cares um, and then of course SARS happened and that was in 2003 that was the first of the big coronavirus-like outbreaks and actually it was really good that we were studying coronaviruses beforehand because we actually knew something about these coronaviruses. We had no idea that they'd make people so sick, but this was the, the sort of the, and that's the baseline. A lot of what we know actually about this new coronavirus actually comes from studies that people did on SARS back in 2003. So, and there are a really pretty major number of parallels, but also some really important differences. Probably the first one and probably most important is that with SARS, transmission was people were already sick and they were really sick before they could actually transmit the virus to somebody else. And so almost all of the people who got sick from SARS were very close contacts to the people who already had the disease and they were relatively easy to isolate. And that was what worked basically for getting rid of SARS. Now it was through a couple of months um, and then it was all over. The actual mortality and I should say the case fatality rate. And so this is an important thing to mention. A lot of people talk about the death rate. No, it's the case fatality ratio. It's the number of actual people who have died divided by the number of cases. And so in the case of SARS, the number of cases was relatively low under that line and above the line, the nominator was relatively high, ended up being about 10%. So that was in 2003. Um, big flash. It was a big deal. And as some of us may remember, I know certainly some of us do, <laughs> um, cancellation of the Women's World Cup, you know, all kinds of things happened in 2003. And it's a big um, issue, but really not so much in the US. And it was pretty confined, mostly, uh, you know, big problems in Hong Kong, to some extent in Canada, but mostly pretty well contained. Um, since then, there's been the MERS coronavirus that very few people have heard about. This is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, actually pretty closely related to SARS. Turns out it's even harder to get the MERS virus, but at the same time, it's much more lethal. The case fatality ratio is about 30%. Um, also, it seems that people are pretty sick and you've got to be very close to the other person in order to actually get sick. Now this new coronavirus, and part of the problem is there's also a lot of terminology issues, and I wanted to get a little bit into the terminology as well here. So novel coronavirus, you know, it's a new coronavirus. Well, there turns out there are literally thousands of coronaviruses out there, and talk a little bit about this in the TV interview that uh, Terry mentioned. But this, you know, so it was originally the new coronavirus. Then the WHO came up with a name for the virus, and that virus name, so when you're just talking about the virus, it's actually SARS-CoV-2. So SARS coronavirus 2. That's if you're talking about the virus. If you're talking about the disease that the virus causes, then we're talking about COVID-19. So coronavirus disease from 2019. So if we're talking disease, it's COVID-19. If we're talking virus, it's SARS-CoV-2. It's hard enough for me, even as a virologist or someone who plays a virologist, to sort of remember these numbers um, and what terminology should actually be using. But you know, disease COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 in terms of actually talking about the virus. So big differences to other coronaviruses. First, um, I see somebody put this in the chat, um, first pandemic coronavirus and truly described as a pandemic um, virus by the WHO. We've actually had a couple of pandemics in the last couple of years. There was the um, H1N1, the swine flu. Um, and then we also had, um, as you know, Terry knows all about that in terms of dealing with it from a higher education point of view. Um, but there, the, the whole idea of a pandemic, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that too, that is that it's something which is spreading worldwide. And so you have an epidemic that's relatively confined in relatively confined geographic areas. So SARS um, was, and probably gonna start calling it SARS-1 or SARS-CoV-1 <laughs> later, but the SARS was really 
much more confined. So that never became a pandemic. That was never something that really went worldwide. Um, MERS is also not something which has gone worldwide, even though it did have a big outbreak in Korea, um, where there were about, a, I think, 160 or some deaths. It was actually um, pretty nasty in Korea. Um, one introduction um, spread to a lot of people, but then was relatively quickly closed down. So again, getting back to SARS-CoV-2, how can this be transmitted? And the, this is true also for all coronaviruses and many particularly respiratory viruses. So one very important distinction here, people are talking about respiratory viruses versus other kinds of viruses. Some viruses are sexually transmitted viruses. HIV is a really good example of that. Um, some of the herpes viruses are sexually transmitted. You also have GI viruses. Polio is a really good example of a virus which is passed through the fecal oral route. And then you have the respiratory viruses. Classic here is flu, but coronaviruses in a similar way. Um, so how these actually get transmitted, and this is getting to the social um, distancing kind of phenomenon. What happens is when you cough, but also when you talk, so it's probably a good thing that all of us are in remote locations now, very good. <laughs> um, and so I guess I'm probably about you know, two feet away from my camera here. That's probably a little bit too close, um, about a meter away, but even just talking. When you're talking, you're producing what are called respiratory droplets. And those respiratory droplets are relatively big um, as far as you know, viruses are concerned, a particular virus transport is concerned. But each of those respiratory droplets, somebody can breathe them in. Um, or, of course, we're hearing all the time, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. They could land on a surface. And then when you touch a surface and touch your face, and I've been you know, trying to watch how often people touch their faces here. I've been seeing a few of you already. Really hard not to touch your face. So the easiest thing to do is to wash your hands and also um, wash surfaces. Now, there's a big question I mentioned right at the beginning. You know, questions about the coronavirus and this particular, again, SARS-CoV-2 that we don't know, how long does this particular virus stay infectious on surfaces? And so there have just been some publications that came out and said, oh, it can last for you know, a couple of days, it can last for hours, et cetera. That is true if you're studying this in the lab and looking at does it still have some kind of effect in a cell culture environment. There is almost no evidence right now for people actually being infected by touching a surface and then touching their face. So the evidence for that is actually pretty minimal. It's probably true based on what we've known from other things, but definitely the coughing and the um, actually literally just talking to someone, particularly very closely to someone, uh, <laughs> that has been very well shown to actually be able to transmit the virus. So really just staying more than a meter away from other people when they're talking and particularly when they're coughing, because these respiratory droplets, they're again, relatively large, um, they drop to the floor or whatever surface relatively rapidly. So just moving back, um, that will lower your exposure a great deal. Um, so um, the WHO had gravity saves. I like that. Is that snarky or not? I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm moving back a little bit. So I think almost all of us in higher education have <clears throat> good projection, I think, as they call us. Other people would say loud um, when you're speaking. And so I think just staying a little bit further away from people is really going to help a huge amount. And this is kind of why people are talking about trying to limit those, you know, sitting next to each other in a stadium or packing into a particular classroom. Because at that point, then you're closer than a meter away from each other, and then the transmission can really happen. So that's sort of the, the whole social distancing thing, and I think why people are you know, trying to get things to go online and we'll hear more about, again, I think some of the ways to deal with that a little bit later on. But the other thing is that even if you are in a classroom setting, a lecture setting for that matter, as long as you're relatively far apart, then 
it's pretty unlikely that people are going to be exposed directly under those kinds of conditions. And so I know a number of people, and we're thinking about this also at Portland State, um, if you have practical classes, labs, et cetera, and I have a research lab, and so I'm concerned about the students who are working with me in that lab, we have the great luxury of having enough space, so a couple of meters between the people who are working, and so we'll be able to continue our research among other things on vaccines, but again, that's a different story. <laughs> um, um, in in that, that space and should not really be an issue. So that's, I think, hopefully those are most of the things that I wanted to cover sort of really, really briefly here. Um, I'll be more than happy to try and answer questions a little bit later on. And I think that's probably a better way for me to contribute to this discussion rather than you know, trying to tell you everything that I know about coronaviruses, <laughs> which, um, as I told Terry before, I can go on for a very, very, very long time, and she knows. Yes, I, I do. <laughs> I was actually in Portland last week, and we had some good discussions about the virus and so on. But in any case, um, Brian, if you go ahead and unmute, we'll, uh, I'll, well, I'll let you introduce yourself, but I do want to make sure everybody knows Brian has a great book out um, and I meant, to, actually, I'll post it on our, our uh, website. There, yay, Academia Next. And um, uh, yes, so make sure you check out his book. Um, and uh, I'll just let Brian, I'll let you introduce yourself. So go ahead. Uh, hi, um, I'm just thinking, uh, first, I, I really wanted to thank uh, Ken for uh, an, an excellent, excellent, very, very concise introduction and overview. And I have to say, he has a fine beard, but what I envy is the bone display he has in the background. I, I'm, I, I feel outclassed. I, uh, I don't think I have anything quite as good that I can really show. Um, but also, I feel like I'm too close to the screen. I, I need to be sitting back a bit. Um, uh, my name is Brian Alexander. I'm a futurist specializing in higher education. Uh, and as a futurist, that means a few things. Um, I uh, write books. Uh, I make media of all kinds, like a monthly trends analysis called the FTTE report. I blog like mad. I, I do a, month, a, a weekly video discussion about the future of education, uh, which we have today at 2 o'clock Eastern Time. Um, I also teach classes at Georgetown University, and I consult worldwide, uh, mostly in the U.S. Uh, I consult with colleges, universities, along with governments, nonprofits, companies, and foundations. Um, so, uh, when it comes to uh, the pandemic we're experiencing now, this is something that people in the futures field have been looking at for decades, if, if not generations. Uh, we have a long tradition of studying this. In fact, I have a blog post going through some of the recent examples. Uh, there are games conducted um, on tabletop involving government officials over the past few years. We have a few exercises conducted uh, in Africa twice uh, about uh, diseases and animals. Uh, we have games you can play, including Pandemic, the famous tabletop game, and computer games uh, that are including the CDC runs one. Um, my point here is not just to crow about how cool futurist people are, we are, um, but to say that this is not something that has completely blindsided us. Um, if you want a quick uh, intro to this, I'd recommend renting the uh, 2012 Steven Soderbergh movie Pandemic, uh, which gives you a lot of really, really good things. Um, uh, my wife saw it before I did. She's an EMT, uh, and uh, the state where we're living paid for her and all the EMTs in the state to go see the movie. And uh, they came back and they were just chilled um, and, and their hands are shaking. Uh, it was a really good plan. Uh, for my money, the best thing about the movie is that Gwyneth Paltrow gets killed 10 minutes in and uh, her body is autopsied. They cut into her skull and they remove her brain. They look into the hole and they say, oh my God, we should tell everybody. And I thought, yes, I've been telling you this for years. But um, uh, just, just to be clear, uh, Terry, would you, would you like me to talk about uh, uh, what I'm seeing in uh, the impact on higher education right now? Or would you like me to talk about the futures perspective? I'm, I'm at your disposal. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it, I'll leave it up to you because I think people are interested in both aspects of it. But um, uh, I think, I know you're also doing a webinar tomorrow with the, uh, the Chronicle <laughs> of Higher Ed. So um, I think we'll, we probably won't get as much of the futurist stuff in that one, or mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah. Well, right now, I, 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 
I'm going to step back from Ken's incredibly well-informed, detailed analysis of the disease, and I'll refer to what I'm seeing from uh, analyses from governments uh, looking ahead. Uh, it seems that there's kind of two broad possible scenarios for how this could play out. Uh, one is that we could see COVID-19 uh, and the coronavirus, this particular coronavirus, basically being a version of the seasonal flu. Um, you know, uh, if, if the uh, case fatality rate is down, you know, 1%, below 1%, rather, um, if it burns out fairly quickly, uh, say in a couple of months, um, then returns in November or December, uh, we may just think of this as a variation of the seasonal flu, a bad flu, um, something that, you know, in come October, all the medical professionals will be saying, make sure you get your COVID shot. Um, and that's, so that's kind of like the, the low impact scenario. Um, and in, in for higher education, that would mean that what we're doing now, and I'm gonna come back to that, is a kind of blip. Um, you know, we're, we're having a temporary emergency, but come August and September, students will pile back to their dormitories, what uh, one person called the uh, cruise ships of campuses. Um, the other extreme scenario, uh, well, the, the, the nightmare scenario that uh, uh, everyone is uh, terrified of is the 1918 um, flu pandemic, uh, nicknamed the Spanish flu. And the, the reason for that was that Spain was the only neutral country in Europe during World War I. Uh, nobody could get away with saying anything about any other country um, because of press censorship. So you could say anything you want about Spain. So it became the Spanish flu. Um, I mean, estimates vary and the data is not that great, but the, uh, the death toll was almost inconceivable. Um, you know, we're talking about one to three percent of the human race. Um, and, uh, and that's the nightmare scenario that everyone is afraid of now. I don't think anyone's talking about that now, but what we're seeing is a possibility of a greater long duration uh, outbreak that could last uh, months. Um, you think about it, say, uh, repeating or cycling through a population, perhaps with mutations that become more dangerous and with higher and higher numbers. Um, you know, Numbers are all over the map right now. Uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, just terrified uh, her country fellows by saying that she expects up to 70% of her population to be infected. Um, a congressional doctor was saying you should expect something like 100, 120 million Americans being infected. Uh, my point here is not to dive into the details of, of how that would play out, how likely that is, but to say that's the other scenario. Um, that we have a long-term health crisis that may come in waves, peaks, and valleys, but that's one that's very, very difficult. Um, in which case, we could see a higher education uh, migrate mostly online. Uh, we could see disruptions to society in that uh, we maintain social distancing for months and months. Uh, it means that some businesses in a, uh, will be clobbered. You think about businesses that rely on face-to-face -face, uh, engagement and can't make a transition online. Some businesses will boom, the ones that survive online. So Amazon, Netflix, Apple, they'll be doing great. Uh, you'll think about changes that ripple through society, everything from changes to dating to uh, sports. Uh, I mean, that's, so I, I would put those two out there as, as two kind of polar scenarios, either the, you know, the great big, horrible, long running um, pandemic or the you know, flu plus. Um, when it comes to higher education, uh, let me just talk about this. And the reason for talking about this is my specialty is higher education, but also um, for a week I've been running um, the most popular Google sheet in the world, I think, uh, which is a list of data about campuses that are closing and or migrating online. Um, I started this, I made this open and it melted down. Uh, at one point I had uh, <clears throat> 300 requests uh, for editing access in about 10 minutes. Uh, right now, we've got uh, several hundred uh, colleges and, and universities listed. Uh, we have data backing up all of them. Uh, and by data, I mean we have official announcements, we have journalism, and we also have iPads data. So we're able to generate maps and headcounts and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, so I can say a couple of top level things about it, and then we can uh, preferably talk about, uh, we can dive into questions and answers and, and, and more discussion. Uh, it looks like the usual pattern uh, is for a campus to close for one, two, or a few more days, either by extending spring break or just by declaring closures. And the purpose of that time is to ramp up their ability to teach online. Uh, following that period, uh, the campus flips over to instruction online. 
And then the, this goes uh, for every campus has a different time period. Some say we'll do this for a week, some say for a month, some say until further notice or we'll monitor the situation. Um, and that's the usual pattern. There's some interesting exceptions. Uh, Berea College in Kentucky, which is a fantastic, fantastic school, um, they're just closing and they're just ending the semester early. They're not moving online because they cannot guarantee their students will have sufficient access to technology that is bandwidth, hardware, and so on to be able to teach, to be able to learn online. Um, there are a few different schools that have longer delays, up to a month, um, and there's some that pounced right away. Um, and then there's big differences between institutional types and a whole series of problems. Uh, Inma asks, uh, sorry, I'm just catching up in the chat. Inma asks, which uh, college? That's uh, Berea. Um, uh, any science the time close going online? No science right now. This is this is pure policy. Um, the one scientific thing I can say is that everyone's copying each other's language. Um, they're using boilerplate, lots of copy and paste. Um, and uh, my favorite thing is the phrase abundance of caution, uh, which is a 19th century phrase and people are just really fond of it right now. Um, plagiarism, yeah, it's policy. People steal policy all the time. You know, um, it's uh, always happy to do that. Um, uh, today, I was uh, the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed today. I'm responding to Taryn's question. Both of them had uh, uh, good articles. I mentioned in one of them about the difference in resources for institutions. I, I think the resources play out, but it's more of a policy question. Uh, you know, Harvard just booted people out really fast, and it's really, really wealthy. Um, and they're getting a lot of static for not doing that well. Um, so to dive into the, to the resource question, it's one thing if you assume that all of your students have a home to which they can return, and that in that home they have access to sufficient infrastructure to keep taking classes and participating in the life of the campus online. Uh, and that's true for some people. Uh, it's not true for everyone. You have students who are homeless. Uh, you have students who can't go home for various reasons. Uh, they can't afford the trip. Uh, they're fighting with their family. Uh, you also have the infrastructure problem. Uh, in the United States, we have a persistent digital divide. It's marked by a lot of things, including uh, class, including education, including race, most strongly by geography. Basically, the closer you are to a metropolitan center, the better your bandwidth, the further away, the worse. Uh, so not just rural colleges, but where students are uh, plays a big issue. Um, and then there's also the whole giant question of how do you make the transition to online instruction? Uh, and I, I want to come back to that because that's a, a very, very big topic. Um, a couple more questions came in in the chat. I want to hit these up um, uh, quickly. Um, the motives of those remaining open right now, Matt, uh, I think partly uh, they're waiting and seeing. Um, partly they might not have confidence in their ability to go online. Uh, partly they may have faculty opposition uh, to going online. In fact, a couple of liberal arts colleges had these great announcements saying we're closing and we'll we will pursue alternative methods of instruction, but they don't mention the internet or data or technology at all. Um, and uh, let's see, um, Ken just is fantastic. I'm glad he says this. Um, uh, he mentions the, if I can spin off of this, Ken. Ken mentions that SARS-CoV-2 originated in China, yes. Um, and, and that's interesting. And there's this huge problem we have of bias. Um, the director of, of WHO is really, really great on this, um, saying that, you know, that, listen, last night, Trump kept saying it's a foreign disease. It comes from China. Diseases don't come from countries. They're not national diseases, rather. They're, they're diseases. They're part of the ecosystem of the planet. Um, and so we have to be really careful of that. Uh, and I think people in February, we're very afraid of anti-Chinese bias. Um, and you may say that play out in different ways. Um, if people pay attention to Iran, which is having a horrendous time, uh, it may get worse. And how it plays out within the US uh, may get worse as well. I mean, it's interesting, for example, that the big clusters, Seattle, New York, California, are very blue states. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the culture wars to play out in, in that aspect. Um, more questions that came in chat, and then I'll go over to video questions. Uh, uh, Google Sheet. Yeah, sure, Chris. Well, just give me a second. I'll copy and paste it. Um, uh, Terry mentioned there's a lot of resistance to online teaching. And then, oh, and I put the link in already. So Terry is a goddess. Um, <laughs> uh, the a couple of notes about resistance to online teaching. Um, one thing is we have a long running, I mean, back to the 1990s, uh, 
usually faculty resistance. Um, the argument that online teaching isn't very good, that it's offensive, that it's bad, that it, it flattens the classroom, that it removes teacher-student, student-to-student intimacy, and so on and so on. The very, very long-running um, uh, argument. Um, and there's also the new argument from the past few years, um, which is that online, uh, you can think of it as a social justice argument, the idea that on the one hand, some of the uses of big data for students are intrusive or involve surveillance. You can think about campuses uh, or K through 12 relying on uh, Google, Google Suite. Uh, you could as well think about uh, problems of access uh, to technology and how that can paper over access uh, problems. Uh, and you can also think about the uh, uh, what some would call the corporatization of the university in the sense that uh, ed tech is, the argument is the ed tech is being driven by venture capital. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not making these arguments or disagreeing, I'm just putting these out there to say, so there's basically kind of two different bodies of resistance that are there. Um, and, and you'll hear them at different campuses depending on the campus culture. Um, suggestions for overcoming faculty resistance. Um, Taryn, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I'll just drill down specifically for uh, the pandemic. Uh, one is to say um, education, so not the entire university mission of research and service, but education in particular. If this is about reaching students, uh, online learning is by far the best way we have of reaching them. Um, that doesn't involve spreading diseases and possibly leading to death and pandemic. Uh, um, so uh, I think that's a straight up really, really good argument. The second thing to point out is that people have been working really hard on making online learning uh, better and better for a generation. And we have scholarly work. Uh, we have professionals who do this. I mean, again, educational technologists, instructional designers are largely invisible. People don't talk about them, but they are heroes here. And right now, this week, they are working to the bone in order to get their whole campuses online. Uh, so I think we can rely on that. And a third point kind of branches off of that is to say the technology has gotten better and better. I mean, we're using Zoom right now. I mean, Zoom, uh, Shindig, uh, Google Hangout, Skype, these are just much more reliable uh, video synchronous technologies than there were 10 years ago. Um, so you can point to that. Um, and also that the population of students as well as faculty and staff are just more and more acclimated to being online. So those are a few quick ones, uh, uh, Taryn. Um, uh, someone had a comment uh, I wanted to, uh, uh, Laura asks about uh, staying in the dorms and access to food services. Uh, this is really fraught, um, Laura. And I'm seeing people all over the map on this. I'm seeing campuses say we are still open. We are just not holding face-to-face -face classes. So if you want food service, if you want to stay in your dorm, you can. I'm seeing dorms, campuses saying, get out of town. We're shutting down completely. Uh, some of them like NYU are saying, you're on spring break, make sure you have your stuff because you might not be coming back. Um, and then, you know, this leads into questions of what do you do with food pantries for food insecure students? Um, I mean, it's right now just completely all over the place. Um, uh, Kristen talks about blue states, uh, red, blue on the edges. Yeah, uh, density. Although Kristen, it's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of red cities to think about. Uh, so you think about say in Texas, Houston and Dallas, which are enormously diverse, incredibly growing, you know, deep red states. You think about something like Miami, which is, ah, it's Miami, it's, it's Florida, it's kind of its own thing. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, we're talking about Los Angeles, the Bay Area, Seattle, New York, uh, where I live in the Washington DC area, uh, and these tend to be blue, yeah. Um, and the uh, uh, othering, oh, uh, Inma mentioned something really, really important too. Um, uh, the head of, of, of WHO has said this several, several times. Um, there's gonna be a tendency, a kind of ageist tendency to say, this disease doesn't matter because it primarily focuses on the older. And if you haven't seen the stats, if you're under 50, and you get uh, COVID-19, your odds of dying are below 1%. But once you go over 60, then the odds start to really, really ramp up. Um, and over 80 is like the primary death zone. Um, and so one reaction people can have is to say, well, I'm 30, 40, 10, 50. I don't need to worry about it. But also, they're just elderly. Right? We don't have to worry about them so much. So we have to really keep that in mind. Uh, campuses don't often have a lot of elderly folks um, on campus. So we may have a bias towards the young, especially if campuses that teach traditional age undergraduates, 18 to 21. Well, uh, the problem there is that 
we do have some elderly folks and we also communicate with other people. You know, those teenagers go home to their parents, their grandparents and so on. Um, so it's a really, really important point. Um, uh, Crystal points out another feature too, uh, that people don't want to go home to their, because they don't want to affect their families. Absolutely great point. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the big social transitions we've been seeing is this kind of this, I don't mean this in a bad way, kind of disintegration, uh, a shift towards smaller and smaller groups. Uh, Governor of uh, California, Newsom, just said that we should ban all gatherings of 250 people and above. Um, you know, so if we, if we have that, then people don't want to infect other people. Uh, we may get uh, pretty isolated. Now, all right, I've been, I've been going on for a while and there's a lot of questions here. I want to hear more from you guys by video. And also Tara, I don't want to trample over your schedule. Yeah, actually, before we go to video, let's go to uh, Eddie, because he will actually follow on to some of the comments you were making about students and having to return to their uh, campuses and so, or homes from campus. So go ahead, Eddie. Thank you, Terry. So by way of introduction for me, my name's Eddie Conroy. I'm the Associate Director of Research Communications here at the Hope Center for College Community and Justice. And for those who aren't familiar with who we are, I'm dropping our website into the chat, but we're a, an action research center that looks at particularly issues in the past few years of food insecurity, housing insecurity, homelessness amongst college students. So the very populations that Brian sort of started to elucidate about who might be at risk as campus as campuses close. My background is in financial aid, so and actually specifically financial aid communications. I was the communications manager for uh, the financial aid office at UCLA before I joined the Hope Center. So first of all, I sympathize deeply with all of you who are at campuses scrambling to figure out how to talk to your students. You have my best wishes, prayers, karma, whatever it is that makes you feel better about the day. Because uh, I know from my own experience that I'm sure everybody's been pulling a lot of hours to try and get information out to their students. So I wanted to frame some of my comments around what we know about what our students look like. And I think Brian's comment about Berea College closing just outright saying we don't know whether our students are going to be able to access the technology they need, if we can actually do this effectively for them in terms of online education is really important because Berea's whole mission is to enroll students from low-income backgrounds, from, un, from you know, minoritized students, things like that. So their whole population looks like the students that we often see when we do our studies and our research and see students who are hungry, homeless, housing insecure, all of those things. And from the work we've done, we know that up to half of community college students and up to a third of four year of students at four year colleges and universities are affected by food insecurity, housing insecurity and homelessness. A lower population for homelessness, but a very large number who are affected by food insecurity, housing insecurity. And obviously as campuses close, many of those students don't, can't just jet off back to, to mom and dad's place. Some of them do not, literally do not have anywhere else to go other than their dorm, that during the summer they're staying with friends, they're couch surfing, whatever it might be. Others, even if mom and dad are available, may be in unsafe situations. As a financial aid staff member, I dealt with appeals on a fairly regular basis of, I can't get my parents' information for FAFSA because my dad's abusive, my mom's an alcoholic, you know, all of these kinds of situations that students deal with. So, that's sort of the underlying data that we have to show that these kinds of issues are going to affect a very large number of students is, as more and more campuses close. And I think we're going to see more and more campuses close over the next week or two. It seems pretty inevitable at this point that that's, that's gonna be what happens. And if a large proportion of those students don't have access to safe places to live outside of campus or food outside of campus, then we're gonna, be making an already quite vulnerable population even more vulnerable potentially. So we actually, we drafted really quickly yesterday as sort of, as closures started to accelerate, we drafted a resource which I'm dropping in the chat and Terry has on her website as well, as sort of a starting point of how to think about supporting students as campuses close, as you think about going online. We're gonna be updating this probably a couple of times a week and we'll, we'll replace it on our website as we update it with new information and new resources. And 
the, the first thing that I think is really important as you think about how to do this work with your students is communicating to them with care that there's been a lot of really bad communication that have come out from some colleges. Harvard would mentioned a couple other places have basically said, hey, we're closing, get out by Friday. That is not the way to do this. It's particularly, I think, embarrassing for a very for very well-resourced institutions to do it like that. You know, when if you're working at a community college with a few thousand students, that's a whole different resource level from our Ivy League schools. And so far I'm seeing much better work being done by some of the least resourced institutions than by some of the most highly resourced institutions. And I think that's really upsetting. So communicate all of this to your students with care that even if you don't have the answers right now, because all of us are scrambling to deal with this, of saying, we care about you, we know that this is gonna be challenging for some students, we know that not all of you have an immediate plan or can afford a flight home straight away, that message of care is really important at the, the core of these things. Brian talked a little bit about internet access, access to technology if your campus is going to online teaching. There are some things to think about there with, you know, not all students are going to have access to reliable devices. And often, more importantly, they don't have access to reliable internet. Uh, rather, the device is not always the issue, it's whether they have internet at home. One thing that we've started kicking around is talking to whoever the ISP, the internet service provider for your campuses, of are they maybe able to provide low cost hotspots or free hotspots? You probably have some financial leverage there with them because you probably have a substantial contract. Even for a smaller college, it's probably worth quite a lot of money to that ISP. They might be willing to assist there so students who don't have those kind of resources can still participate in online classes if that's the way you're going. Thinking about what your students are going to do for medical care. A large proportion of college students are uninsured and often, you know, this is particularly at four-year institutions, if there's a medical center on campus, that might be their only access to medical care. So providing advice on how they might be able to enroll in Medicaid or community resources locally if they're going to be staying in the area of how they can still get medical care because let's be real that's going to be one of the things that a lot of our students are thinking about well what do i do if i do need to be tested or i get sick i need to go to the hospital things like that the other thing and that we're doing is one of the things that we have talked a lot about at the hope center is emergency aid funds and we actually between our founders nonprofit believe in students Equity, which is an emergency aid app, and then RISE, which is a students group, we stood up, I say we, I was only involved in sort of the communicating this part of things, but has been stood up an emergency fund to help distribute emergency aid to students. And we're coordinating this with RISE as our student, as a student partner that can help get some funds to students quickly of, for the student that doesn't have $300 to book a flight home or who needs a couple of hundred bucks to put their stuff in storage. We're seeing that of students being told they have to take everything right away and they don't know what they're going to do just with physical belongings. So that's sort of a resource that we're trying to get in there and Equity is doing some matching for the first $5,000 that are donated as well. And then the last piece of this that is, is just as important before I wind up and we'll leave some time for all of us to do questions is thinking about your staff and faculty too, that this is a fearful time for everybody here. It's not just fearful for our students. And I know we're all trying to you know, hold things together and be calm for the students we work with. But the reality is that your staff will have concerns of their own, faculty will have concerns of their own. And as Brian previously mentioned, not all faculty are terribly well equipped to go from teaching in a classroom to teaching online overnight. Pedagogically, teaching online is an entire different approach to teaching in a classroom. And the people who do this really well have been doing it for a long time and spend a lot of time thinking about how to do it well. And going from if you've never done that to doing it overnight is gonna be really hard. And so supporting those faculty where you can. We put a couple of things in that resource that are actually 
references to colleagues we work with who have some really great approaches to teaching online. Jesse Stommel is somebody that I is a, a good friend who has some wonderful pedagogical approaches to doing you know online teaching well. And so there are resources out there that you can share with staff and fa with faculty, particularly as they go towards towards doing this work online. If that's something you're thinking about, so I think we've got about 15 minutes left. So I will shut myself down and then I think we're going to do some questions. Is that right, Terry? Yes. So now's your chance um, to ask some questions. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I'm going to clap because this has been fantastic, guys. This is exactly what I was hoping for. Um, and uh, I want to mention as so there are lots of resources. Um, I've posted the link to our site and I'm going to be updating that on a regular basis. Um, and actually, I'm going to launch a poll right now. Um, so I hope uh, folks will take a look at that um, and uh, let us know if there's more interest in doing more of these. Um, I can't get these guys every time. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but Eddie, I have a question for you. Um, so are, are you seeing, um, and I'm curious, other groups that are trying to step into this space right now to help out students, are you seeing, um, is there a trend? I, I saw some alumni groups that are starting to, to check in. Yeah, I, I think the trend is actually the bit that worries me because so far I'm seeing a lot more coming from students organizing themselves, mm -hmm. alumni groups, particularly um, at, at some of the wealthier institutions, which kind of makes sense because alumni groups from those institutions probably are better connected, better resourced, all of those things. And from outside organizations like us. And that kind of worries me because it says that colleges are not doing a great job of working on this and communicating these things. And I say that very carefully because I also understand the huge challenges that are involved in something like this. But I think that particularly when we do look at some of those really highly resourced institutions, there's a lot that are capable of doing a much better job and either have just not thought about it or have decided they're not going to do that better job. And that's very frustrating. You know, I, I have a lot more grace for a community college that has a budget this big than I do for an Ivy League institution with a budget that's, you know, this big. Um, and so I'm hoping that that trend will change and that this was just people were able to mobilize fast, but I'm, I'm seeing kind of more outside work than inside work happening right. at the moment. I'm curious if we've got a bunch of people from different institutions online. If you want to plug into the chat and let us know if there's anything going on at your institutions. I think one thing I'm going to be, this is a, a huge topic for me <laughs> and, um, and I'm very interested to see, I, you know, I posted on LinkedIn about it, um, maybe trying to get some of the bigger organizations, but actually this is something um, that uh, I think the, the institutions themselves need to be thinking about more carefully. And I, I'm, I'm, um, I want to talk to you guys offline about that because I think we should be, I mean, you're already doing it, I know, but if we could put some pressure on some of the institutions to get them to do more for students, just, you know, I know there's an article, I think, in the Chronicle today about it. And even I think the Washington Post has been talking about the issue of student support. So um, in any case, and I think it's another issue of communication, again, not just because they aren't telling, doing a good job telling students what's going on, but also they, they aren't uh, communicating to the media or anybody else, you know, what's happening with the students. And so parents like me are really concerned, oh my God, you know, do it, should I be opening up a room in my house for, you know, students who are stuck and so on. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm looking at some of the comments. Um, so you have online, so Matt has online students and uh, yeah, but, so there's the technology issue. Um, and uh, and there, we haven't even talked much about, we've just touched on the international student issue. And I know the Department of Ed is putting out new guidelines around that. But um, are you guys running into any issues with that, Eddie, or? I, we really, because of the work we do is, we've got an, a sort of an overrepresentation of community colleges. We don't see as much around international students. Mm -hmm. And I am, this is an area where like Ken, I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm just okay. not expert on when it comes to visa <laughs> issues. You know, 
I think giving those students options to stay needs to be part of the conversation aside from the visa part of things um, and seeing what the Department of Ed comes out with in conjunction with Homeland Security and uh, immigration on what that will do to their visas because if right. they a lot of visas the one bit I do know having been on a, an international visa myself is you usually can't study remotely on it and so there's there's mm -hmm. some things to figure out there but beyond that I don't know yeah no I know there are some changes coming on that front as well uh, some waivers and so on Brian did you want to jump in on the financial issues yeah just uh, if I could and I, I want to second the applause for uh, Poor beardless naked face Edward, and seriously, those are both fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, discourses. I really hope everyone got uh, got to hear them carefully. I want you to be sure to interrogate them as very, very deeply knowledgeable people. Um, the financial aspect is one that we're not really seeing right now. I, I don't mean the financial aspect of, of, of immediately how do you pay for it. I mean, it's higher education in the United States has been under a financial cramp for the past 12 years, mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to accelerate. I mean, think of it this way. Um, if we manage to burn through uh, COVID-19 in two months, it means that's the good case scenario, right? If we mm -hmm. do that, it means that we're going to have roughly three months of economic pain. Uh, possibly uh, recession level. Well, down the road, then that appears on our campuses because it means that state governments will have lower revenues, which means they will definitely cut payments to public higher education, which is about 60% of US higher ed. It means that the institutions that are historically lucky to have endowments may be suffering from lower endowment performances. And they mean families that uh, uh, are considering higher education may downshift in cost institutions they send students to. We saw that in 2008, 2009. If the economy continues to worsen, uh, and if, if the second big scenario happens, we have a longer running um, pandemic and the economy grinds to a halt, say Italy style, for months at a time, and these will be exacerbated. So come fall, we may see campuses that are gonna be hit with an extra bill. Um, and this may further push some of them over the edge may push some of them into consolidation and mergers. So I want to make sure that we see that looking ahead. Yep, absolutely. Um, are there any other thoughts on the uh, financial side of it? I mean, I can talk to this a little bit because I've been on the inside as a provost dealing with the financial issues. And I can tell you that, actually I was just having a discussion before this, um, that too many schools, especially small liberal arts colleges are on the edge in terms of their finances and they'd be pulling out of their endowments to keep cash flow going. Um, you know, they are very heavily, especially tuition dependent schools are going to be heavily impacted here because we may see um, more students not continuing. Um, you know, my concern is how this is going to impact, you know, especially, you know, uh, traditionally you know, borderline students who are all of a sudden being pushed to online or seeing their semester ending to deciding, you know, they can't afford to go back. Um, and I think we mentioned this previously, you know, things like, well, Eddie and I were talking at, actually at the beginning about students who have jobs on campus. So there's so, I mean, I'm veering off, but um, from the original topic of, but there's so many financial components to this. It's, it's not just, you know, the, the impact of, um, you know, having to deal with the virus from, you know, cleaning perspectives and, and, you know, the cost, I mean, you know, you can imagine the costs that schools are going into just getting Zoom. <laughs> I mean, it's not cheap. <laughs> um, and uh, I was talking to an instructional designer before this and, you know, they're happy to offer their services, but, you know, the, a lot of administrations have their heads down right now just dealing with the immediate thing in front of them and not necessarily thinking about, um, who can we use to help our faculty, you know, make this transition? And, you know, you've only got a week to make the transition in some cases, days, or no time at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, 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 Brian's throwing some, um, uh, is, uh, some uh, topics in there. Um, so we'll also try to put in some resources around OER. Um, I would uh, imagine that we will see a long tail on the financial issues for institutions as well, because the part that 
is sort of unknown here is what this will do to admissions and enrollment, exactly. particularly for tuition dependent institutions that were at the time of year where admission decisions have either gone out or are going out. And then most students are, are then deciding over the next month or two where they're going to go. I'm seeing campuses cut, cut off all of their campus visit programs, mm -hmm. which is going to change things for a lot of them. And also it's going to impact students who are like, well, do I want to travel further afield? There's going to be all of these kinds of psychological decision-making points for students and families too, which is going to be very hard. You know, I don't think most campuses are going to know until next year, but it's probably going to really upend. I would imagine that there are a lot of enrollment management leaders who are looking at statistical models and throwing them out the window and trying to figure out what they look like now as they figure out their yield rates and things like that, which... Mm -hmm. You know, for the big for the big behemoths, either public flagships and the big privates, that's probably not going to change things dramatically for them. But for anybody who was already kind of a little wobbly, that could really take their legs out. Well, it, it may even hurt some of the uh, flagships. Uh, University yeah. of Delaware actually has a case on campus. Um, mm -hmm. People remember that. Um, I mean, if you're applying University of Delaware and you get into ten schools, is that going to be is that going to push you off the table for that one? Exactly. Um, and, and if if we go for the if we go for the happy scenario, it's possible that come August and and, and September that people will not associate COVID nineteen with physical campuses. But if if it keeps roaring along, uh, it may be that we see uh, face to face enrollments plummet. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, actual enrollments, actual people actually going to class, um, and then you know online education those of us who have offered it know that it isn't necessarily cheaper. In fact, sometimes the opposite, but the perception that most people have in the economy is that if it's online, it must be cheaper. So it may be that we see a big market pressure to haul down tuition, um, perhaps in the form of lawsuits, perhaps in the form of uh, lobbying at state governments. Um, that's something that we really can't afford. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, the other thing I'll add, though, is, is the collaboration component. I mean, that's why I created the Center for Higher Education Leadership, because I was hoping it would become a community for folks to come and be able to discuss these issues. So I see we're getting 94% are saying we should do this on a weekly basis. <laughs> and uh, so we will be working on that. We also have some partners who are interested in helping us out with this. So um, I'll be figuring this out over the next few days, but you can keep an eye out for doing, we'll be doing this on a more regular basis for at least uh, through the end of, uh, I would say May or so, because I think uh, this is going to be an ongoing issue. Um, but yeah, the uh, one of the things somebody mentioned in the chat is the, that what we're doing right now is not should not be considered the model for online teaching. <laughs> it's uh, you know it's, it's I'm curious what you think about this, uh, Brian. Remote teaching versus you know a real online teaching model. <laughs> and you oh. could probably talk about this for a long time. Well, actually, I think what we're doing right now is actually really really good. Um, I mean, think about what we're doing right now as a kind of seminar. Yes, uh, exactly. We had Ken. We had Ed. Um, very, very concisely giving you information. I mean, so here's information transmission. This is the lecture mode, but very, very short, like uh, 10 minutes, maybe each. Um, and then we've had a, a real free flow of question and answer, both through the chat box and through video. And, and of course, Terry, you're doing this great job of you know, leveraging these back and forth. Um, I, I think in a, in a bottle, actually, I think this is really good for the seminar style, if that's, mm -hmm. if that's what you like. For a, a French 101 class, maybe not so much. For calculus, no. Um, but for a history class, for literature class, uh, ethics, maybe this can be a good example. Um, there are many, there are many, many issues of how to migrate online pedagogically. And unfortunately, we have two minutes left. Yeah. Um, so I would just point to the fact that we have a lot of practice in doing it. Uh, there are a lot of great experts, people who've been doing it all the time. Um, just on a personal note, my seminar this, this semester at Johns Hopkins, I'm sorry, at Georgetown, uh, is migrating online. Georgetown just pushed us on online instruction. But it's a seminar on education and technology. So I think my students are the best prepared in North America to talk about this. Um, so um, you know, we'll, we'll see what they say. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm just going to take a quick look to see if there's any other questions from the chat we should take a look at. Um, so uh, yeah, so slow moving is just, yeah, multiple tornadoes um, agreed. Um, and, you know, I think, um, 
you know, just looking at the uh, poll, I think uh, we'll probably do something either around student support or communication uh, for our next one, but keep your, we have everybody's um, contact info, so we will make sure that we keep everybody in the loop about what we do next. But I, I, I'm going to wrap up here because we only have a minute and I know everybody's very busy. Um, so we will be sharing the re uh, recording with everyone. Please share it with everybody you know who's worried about these issues because I think this has been the best conversation I've had <laughs> about this topic. Uh, and um, I really, really want to thank Brian and Ken and Eddie. This has just been a fantastic discussion. And, you know, Brian, again, Brian, I put the link in our uh, online re uh, coronavirus resources page. Brian's going to be online tomorrow with the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and you can ask him more if you think of questions. But also, please come and join our community. Um, we, this is why we're here. We want everybody to uh, be a part of this, and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. So thanks, guys. I hope to be seeing you online, and um, we will continue the discussion. If you want to be part of it, uh, just, yeah, we'd love to have you. But uh, yeah, I think. Um, our next one will focus more on the communication and Eddie, I'll probably be in touch with you because I think the communication issue with students is going to be a big topic. So sure thing. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay.